You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to www.3cr.org.au. 3CR and Uprise Radio are produced on the unceded lands of the Kulin Nation. We stand in solidarity with elders past, present and emerging in resisting the settler colonial state. Good afternoon, everybody, and uh, welcome to Uprise Radio. That was Angie McMahon with If You Call, a local Melbourne musician. And, well, I hope everyone's having a good week. Hello, Jackson. How are you? I'm good. Thank you, James. Great. Yeah. Nice, All right. Nice to see you in the flesh. We're both yeah. here. It's been a little while. It has, yeah. First time this year. It's great to be back in the studio feels nice. Mm, it does feel good. It feels regular. feels COVID normal. <laughs> All right. Well, um, enough of the pleasantries. Let's get into the show. Who are you calling pleasant? So in 2019, the Australian Labor Party lost another unlosable election <gasps> to the marketing guru, Scott, where the bloody hell are you, Morrison? And after an Hawaii. internal... That's where he was. <laughs> After an internal review that was almost as damning as the Collingwood Racism Report that was released this week, their findings, and with a new leader, they told the country they would not repeat the same mistakes again. And with their new left-wing leader in Anthony DJ Elbow Albanese in charge, could it be that the ALP might move towards being a left alternative to the Liberals? 
We had a glimmer of hope for a moment. Well, Elbow began talking up his lifelong passion of fighting Tories. Then he went missing for months, perhaps also in Hawaii. Well, he returned telling the public that now wasn't the time for politics, just like your right-wing uncle at a barbecue. Ah, yeah, keep politics out of sport, mate. With the dust settling in Australia for the first time since the beginning of the pandemic, the rumblings have begun from the Australian to pretty much every media outlet and Albanese himself answering questions about whether he is going to be the leader to lead ALP to the next election. And I think indeed what their actual strategy is going to be for the um, probably later this year, the federal election. So on the show today, we've got joining us to discuss who could replace Albanese or what would be a good strategy is lawyer, anti-corruption activist Harry Stratton, who this week published an article addressing some of these issues in Jacobin, which um, we will send around later. Harry, thanks so much for joining us. And uh... oh, Thanks so much for having me, guys. So, Harry, maybe just um, you want to start by, yeah, it was a bit of a long sort of interview there to set the scene, but I think, um, you know, it's sort of coming off a long run for those who are not perhaps following it um, as closely as others. You know, what, what is, what's, what's Elbow done and what's gone wrong, do you think, for him? Um, so, look, I want to I just start by saying I campaigned for Elbow to become leader in 2013, and he's still so much better than any of the right-wing ghouls the Murdoch media are just trying to foist on us. But when you think about him, the overwhelming like emotion has to be disappointment, right? Like it, it goes from the small target strategy that, in, that seems to involve just backing away from key policies like negative gearing reform um, to just last week, the appeasement of coal industry apologists like Joel Fitzgibbon um, when the planet's basically on fire. Yeah, I agree. And, but I, I mean, I guess it is interesting because I think that unlike perhaps some of the, um, you know, social democratic parties or um, alternative parties in, say, the US and, you know, what we've seen um, at times in the UK, that, that doesn't present, a, you know, a charismatic leader from the left of the Labour Party to kind of um, take on some of the people, you know, even as I say, within the party, let alone kind of those without. Do you think, like, you know, what is the strategy, do you think, that Albanese, if I think, you know, he's, he's most likely to continue as leader, what's the kind of strategy that he could lead in the election if it's to come this year or early next year? Well, I think there's two parts to it. Um, but the, the main thing to remember is, of course, the ALP can win the next election. The course it's on, though, is one that's been deliberately chosen by right-wing elements. They would basically rather potentially lose the election and maintain control of the party than do the kind of stuff that could transform the party and transform the country, um, but lose their own power and personal patronage networks. So here's what I think a winning strategy looks like. The first part of it is letting Labor's members directly choose their leader so that we can have a genuinely inspirational figure for the Lodge. Um, And I think part of the reason why, as you said, Australian Labor doesn't really have an inspirational figure like Jeremy Corbyn or like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, is that those are the kinds of inspirational people who you produce when candidates are chosen by rank-and-file members. But the problem is that basically a small coterie of right-wing party officials control the party machine um, through this system of delegates that locks out ordinary members um, and that gives a disproportionate voice to 
right-wing trade unionists like Joe DeBruin and not their members um, who overwhelmingly support a left-wing Labor Party. So I think that's the first step. And the second step is sticking with policies that are actually about transforming society. Um, stuff like rebuilding public housing um, that speaks to a generation of young people whose best hope of home ownership is when their parents die. Um, stuff like setting ambitious climate targets to stop the planet being on fire and ending this stranglehold that Rupert Murdoch has on the media. And look, here's the thing that the, the right-wingers like Joel Fitzgibbon don't want to tell you. Most of Bill Shorten's policies in the last election were actually pretty popular. And there was popular will to go even further than those policies. The problem was that he was perceived as this dishonest right-wing personality who you couldn't trust to enact those kind of policies and who had stabbed two Labor leaders in the back. So I think the right, like Joel Fitzgibbon, want to take exactly the wrong lessons um, from the 2019 election. Uh, Harry, it's Jackson here. I don't know whether you can hear me. Can you hear me okay just to check? Yeah, of course. Oh, that's great. I was worried for some reason, but it's good to know that you can hear me. Um, I was interested, we were talking last week, you know, about the lack of leadership and vision with, with Dennis Glover, who's been an advisor and a speechwriter to Labor over the years. And, you know, one thing you highlight regularly in, in the article and you've touched on there is some of Labor rights ideas, you know, Jim Chalmers and Christina Keneally, particularly you name, you know, there seems to be a really like a chasm between their ideas and what uh, Labor voters, actual voters actually want, you know. Um, what do you think, if anything, is being done within Labor to bridge that gap at the moment? Like, I think you just gave two really clear uh, points of what they could be doing. But, you know, to your knowledge, is that type of, you know, renewal going to occur? Is that kind of intellectual spade work to come up with some, you know, some ways to, to connect with these uh, disillusioned working class voters? Do you think that's being done? Well, let me, let me start by saying I think you're absolutely right that most Labor voters and actually most Australians on a lot of issues are way to the left of the Labor Party. Like when you do polling on stuff like power privatisation, it shows that most Australians want a fairer society where kids can actually afford to buy a home. Um, in terms of the, the renewal process, there is stuff that could drive that renewal process, like rank-and-file democratisation, because the, the member base of Labor is way to the left of the current leadership. But the problem is that right-wingers like Christina Keneally, that's one you identify, um, keep pushing against these reforms, basically because if those reforms really happened, right-wingers like Christina Keneally wouldn't be in power anymore. We'd have more inspirational left-wing Labor figures who actually represent the membership. Why? Or can you you explain it really well in the article, and I'd like you know to hear it for the listeners. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the machinations that keep putting up? Like it's it's incredible to me that after Shorten's you know embarrassing loss at the last federal election, that he there is you know rumours already swirling that he is aiming to be the leader for the next election, the one after this one, you know. And we know, and Christina Keneally, despite you know you know a glut of electoral defeats you know in 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 seats that she should have had a good shot of winning just from being on a labor ticket what is the mechanism by which currently these candidates keep getting foisted onto the australian public well you're you're absolutely right the right wing say that you know we're all about electoral victory we're all about triangulating to the center um but actually when you look at people like bill shorten or christina keneally they're proven losers over and over again in the eyes of the public and the, the mechanism that they 
used to keep perpetuating that kind of group of people in control of the party is that basically the rank and file branch structures in New South Wales Labor and Labor federally don't really exist. It's just a group of delegates selecting delegates, selecting delegates until about five right-wing officials can sit in a room and dole out pre-selection to their mates. Um, and so it's because there's that disconnect between members and power structures that we keep getting pretty lackluster candidates from that coterie of right-wingers um, rather than candidates who actually speak to people. I think one of the interesting things um, is about this kind of, you know, I guess it's always been this interlinked thing between the trade unions and the Australian Labor Party. And I think for many on the left, you know, involved in unionism, that is something that, you know, has held back unions and certainly held back industrial action at different times. And, I, you know, I'm really interested in this issue with Joel Fitzgibbon and, you know, this kind of wedging of looking at union unions as that and workers is the way, you know, he's kind of phrasing it in the, you know, old... Labor Party or Labor um, movement sort of language and how that fits in with uh, progressive climate change. Because, you know, while the working class is always, you know, at the centre of any movement, we're the ones also going to suffer when action is not happening on climate. And, you know, how do you see that kind of relationship at the moment? And, you know, I guess we've seen in the past, you know, John Howard won an election basically by getting parts of CFMEU from Tasmania on board, you know, how, how do we kind of campaign around that? And, you know, how is that going to work internally? I think coal industry kind of apologists like Joel Fitzgibbon just want to put this dichotomy between progressive climate policies um, and unions. And it's just, it's just completely wrong. Um, like the most representative trade unionist is a 37 year old in the Nurses Federation. And when it comes to unions like the CFMEU, um, which, as you say, represents coal miners and forestry workers, it's a left union. Um, it's more progressive than the ALP's leadership on pretty much every issue. And like everyone else sensible in this debate, the CFMEU acknowledge that fossil fuels aren't the way of the future. What they're fighting for is a just transition for their members into the, from these current jobs into the high-skilled jobs of this future green economy. Um, so when Joel Fitzgibbon claims to be standing up for the interests of these workers, I just think that's completely false. Um, what the actual representatives of those workers want is, as you say, the opportunity for a climate change transition that doesn't leave working class people out in the coals, that puts the burden of climate change upon the big corporations that have benefited most from it rather than ordinary people. Harry, what do you think the elevation of Chris Bowen, one of the architects of offshore detention um, in Australia, to the climate change shadow portfolio means for Albanese's or the Albanese team's policy heading towards the election? How do you feel about Bowen's appointment? I think it inevitably signals this shift to the right. Um, I mean, as you said, when he was immigration minister, Chris Bowen kept innocent people on island prison camps and in basically any sane society, even in America, keeping people, especially children, locked up is immediately disqualifying. Um, but instead, Chris Bowen's been promoted yet again. And let's not forget the job Chris Bowen had in the meantime of shadow treasurer. He took a really boring bureaucratic policy, like franking credits, um, that people in the economic centre kind of agree with for technocratic reasons, 
and he let the Liberals turn that into Labor's death tax. So he wants to pretend that he's triangulating to the centre uh, in order to win popular support, but actually he's a right-wing ideologue and he's not even a particularly effective one. I think, um, Harry, in your, in your article you talk about you know some of the um, failure of the British Labor Party and, you know, we mentioned Jeremy Corbyn before and, you know, since he was unable to win um, the election to be Prime Minister, we've seen, you know, the party pretty much tear itself apart and, you know, really try to discredit uh, Corbyn himself and, you know, as you mentioned in, in the article to kind of expel parts of the kind of left of the Labor Party. I mean, here, I think that, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see kind of similar arguments, particularly around, you know, similar issues around Israel and anti-Semitism and things like that. But it seems, you know, for quite a long time, really, that the left, if if there is still one within the Labour Party, is, you know, completely unwilling to even speak out about issues, you know, privately, you know, friends that you have, um, you know, that we might all have that are in the Labour Party, and they'll say, oh, you know, this is this kind of thing is happening and you know people are working on these issues but there's really no evidence of that kind of coming out and you know if if the um if it is indeed true that you know not just the voting public but the core of the labor members are much further to the left than you know the people um, elected to parliament why aren't they able to push their leaders and say well okay well, we don't want you as um, our representative here or, you know, is it just um, part of the bureaucracy of the Labor Party or, you know, are they perhaps not quite as willing to campaign as much as they say they are? I think you're, you're right in that there are still elements of the Labor Party that support um, more left-wing causes, especially on Israel-Palestine. So Melissa Park in WA, um, who is the former member for Fremantle, um, is someone who leaps out to me. Um, but basically it is that ordinary rank and file members in the Labor Party have basically no influence uh, over its policy direction. I mean, I've been a member of the Labor Party for about 10 years and I've never voted in a rank and file pre-selection ballot. Um, basically because, again, the administrative committee and a small group of right-wingers are the ones who can make all the decisions in the Labor Party. I mean, if... If you want to take an extreme example, the same electoral system of delegates electing delegates electing delegates until four people in a room make all the decisions is exactly the same as the structure adopted by the CCP in China. And it's because that enables a small group of people to control pre-selections and control caucuses um, that Labor remains so far to the right. But I think what we're seeing now, um, especially with conferences that are open to the media and conferences that elect rank and file delegates directly um, is labor activists being able to push back on some of these issues. So for example, at the national conference before last, uh, rank and file labor delegates were able to put up policies about supporting uh, equality for the Palestinians and about condemning the treatment of Palestinians in the occupied territories. And because unlike most Labor conferences, a lot of those delegates were directly elected by the rank and file. Uh, the left all but had control. And in some cases where direct democracy has been introduced of one control of states like Tasmania and Queensland. So it's not that there aren't people pushing for this kind of change. It's just that in some places, existing power structures make those kind of pushes impotent and make it hard for our voices to be magnified. 
Do you think the revelations about the level of criminality in New South Wales labour um, over the past you know, four or five years are increasing that appetite on the East Coast and the Southern East Coast? And, you know, can you do a bit of forecasting about the upcoming um, National Labour Conference at the end of March this year? Is that going to be open you know, in, the, in the way that you're suggesting some recent ones have, or is that going to be uh, heavily bureaucratically managed? Um, in relation to the first part of your question, I think the corruption in New South Wales Labor uh, goes back essentially to the 1970s and 1980s. It's not a new phenomenon. The, the thing is that whenever some kind of corruption is exposed, um, whether it be the Sam Dastiari uh, accepting the payments from foreign billionaires, whether it be Jamie Clements, whether it be Kayla Manane, the right shift personalities around, but fundamentally nothing ever changes. Mm. It's it's not about the particular people in power being especially bad, although they're all right-wing ghouls. It's this system that perpetuates the same kinds of people and the same kinds of corruption that still exists in New South Wales. And I think that is at least starting to draw people's attention to uh, the internal rottenness of the Labor Party, basically, and starting to present the opportunities for change. Um, but there's still a long way to go. In terms of the national conference, I think on the one hand, there are reasons to be optimistic. Like in Queensland, the left is doing better than ever before, for example. Um, and in different states around the country, it looks like for the first time, left delegates are standing in places and they're winning because for the first time, the rank and file members have someone to be inspired by to vote for instead of just some tired right-wing former MP. Um, but on the other hand, I think the right of Labor has learned the lessons of Jeremy Corbyn all too well. And they realise that the moment there's a chink in their armour, the moment there's any kind of democracy introduced, that means advances for the left and advances for rank and file members at the expense of their future pre-selection. So they're going to try and make this conference even more bureaucratic, even more centrally controlled, even more characterised by stitched up deals between factions rather than open debate on conference floor that rank and file delegates can participate in. So there's reasons to be both optimistic and pessimistic, I guess. I guess uh, I wonder, um, you know, perhaps on a personal kind of note, Harry, how do you, as you said, you know, been a member for 10 years and you, you end the article by saying that the only real leadership choice will be one between disappointment and despair, you know, un unless you know, the kind of changes that you mentioned in the article can kind of happen. You know, what what brings you to continue to, you know, kind of be in some ways feel like you're fighting, a, you know, a, an often losing battle and to bring yourself to, um, you know, not be making necessarily the ground that you would like to and be surrounded um, by that kind of bureaucracy. Yeah, how do you keep fronting up? Yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry, you go. No, no, that's all. I just just reiterating, like, how do you you keep showing up for this? You know, um, I think I think the number one thing I'd say is they don't call it the struggle because it's easy. Um, no one hates the Labor Party uh, more than its own members. <laughs> there is value in in kicking around and at least renewing your membership every year for two reasons. Um, the first is that over time, the rights rotten structure is basically starting to fall apart. And we need left members there in order to seize the moment of opportunity when it comes. Uh, so when Jeremy Corbyn uh, won in the UK, for example, that was a surprise to everyone, including the long-standing institutions of the left. And I think a lot of the problems 
were that even though he'd won this personal mandate, he hadn't won power over the Labor Party, whether it was in the machine, um, in Transport House with staffers actively plotting against him on the Labor Party payroll or in the PLP. Um, so basically, we need left members there in order to create that infrastructure for someday when we do have a future left-wing Labor leader. And until then, even if that seems like a pretty far-off hope, um, at least if you're involved, you can help us stop right-wing ghouls like Chris Bowen from getting elected. Um, and I consider that that small victory uh, any kind of victory, but better than no victory at all. I guess um, just, you know, we have to uh, come to a close soon. But uh, just as we kind of look to, you know, probably, as we said, you know, later this year being a federal election, you know, how do you see that kind of strategy playing out if, you know, Albanese is to continue as leader? And, you know, I think one of the, as you, you know, as you said about not just Corbyn, but uh, Sanders as well, I guess one of the criticisms and was also labelled at Shorten was about having a policy platform that was perhaps too big for people to engage with or understand, um, you know, be that as it may, whether that's, we all agree with that or not. How do you kind of see that? Do you, do you see that they're going to be able to have to really narrow down a smaller platform, you know, explain some of the things better from the last election? You know, what is going to stop Scott Morrison and kind of deliver that victory, do you see? I don't think it's so much about pruning the platform. I think it's about, I guess, the fundamental problem that Bill Shorten had last time was he was running against a former advertising executive and people still thought that Bill Shorten was the dishonest one. And when you have someone like that who's promising um, not quite transformational change but big and good change in society, the value of all those promises is just immediately discounted when you think that this person who you don't trust is the one who's promising to enact them. So I don't think it's a small target strategy that could win Labor the next election. I think it's a big transformational strategy and a leader, and a leader who actually inspires people and who people can trust and make that transformation happen. Um, stuff that we've already seen in this country, like Gough Whitlam in 1972. Mm. But and, can Albanese oh, be that? leader like if, if they were to come up with a really fantastic i don't know i'm being very optimistic but some type mm. of green new deal you know that that brings the unions out in support of a transition a just transition can albanese sell that to the australian public is he that figure i think anthony albanese used to be um when he joined new south wales labor and basically started the group in the left that was there to take over the party to make it more left-wing he used to be that person, um, but I don't know whether he can be that person again. And that's why I say between disappointment and despair. Well, um, like most shows, we'll finish on that grim note. And <laughs> <laughs> No, I think, um, no, there's not really much more that we can say about that, Harry, and, uh, but we do really appreciate coming on today. And uh, it's going to be something we're certainly obviously going to be following and engaging with until the election happens. But Harry, uh, thanks so much for coming on today and um, really appreciate it. Thanks very much, guys. Love the show. Cheers. Well, um, we've just coming to the end of the show, Jackson. And, Flies um, by every fortnight. 
It does. Well, just I wanted to say one thing before we finish up with a song is that um, coming up for the next uh, week or so is a subscriber drive. So on the 15th of February, I believe. Yep. Yep. So if um, listeners would, um, we're just giving you a heads up to... If you're listening now and you're not a member, subscribe. It's a wonderful institution here at 3CR. puts out... You know, hundreds of programs every week that you won't hear anywhere else. Community languages, um, you know, all different groups. It's got an amazing democratic structure that means all the volunteers have a say in how it's run and what goes to where. The more you look into it, the more impressive it is. And if you're not a member, just do it if you can afford it. And if you can't, some call up and maybe someone will help you get a membership. I don't know. Oh, obviously, for like many places that uh, last year was quite difficult for the station and didn't have the same fundraising uh, efforts as we might other times. So yeah, it would be, um, we'll obviously be talking about next, a lot more on the show to come, but this has been Uprise Radio and we shall see you next time. Up next is Chronically Chilled. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.